0: Well, today we are going to return to our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We took a couple of Sundays off and considered the glories of public worship. But today we're back at it, and we are going to pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 7, of verse 13. And our text beginning there extends all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 25. And so I invite you to give attention now as I read publicly for you uh, the Word of God. Again, Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, as I anticipated reading these verses from this pulpit, this day, I wondered to myself, what is going to go through people's minds as they hear these verses? In other words, what will be their response, their knee-jerk reaction? I don't know for certain but I want to give you three possible responses. Number one is this. This is frustrating. I don't have a clue what this means. Paul is way too difficult. I mean just way too complex. The second possibility is this. Uh, This is rather uninspiring. I'm not sure how it relates to me, the situation I find myself in today. Paul is too irrelevant unpractical. Number three, this is discouraging. I'm not sure how this is intended to help me. Uh, To be honest, Paul is a little too gloomy. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if I were a wagering man, I would wager that many of us here, the vast majority of us here, Upon hearing these words, these verses, this text, respond somewhere along the lines of these three responses I've just shared with you. This is frustrating. Paul is too difficult. This is uninspiring. Paul is too irrelevant. This is discouraging. Paul is too gloomy. So do you know what my chief order of business is today? It is to change your mind. Radically alter your thinking. And by the time, I say it with a grin on my face, but I'm perfectly serious, by the time you leave here today, you will acknowledge that this is actually one of the most comforting passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. Did you hear me? What I just read is actually, in actual fact, reality, one of the most comforting texts in the whole Bible. Right up there with Psalm 23. Right up there with John 14. right up there with John 17. right up there with that bastion of all comfort, Romans 8:28. Romans 17 verses 13 through 25, one of the most comforting, comforting passages of Scripture. Now why would I say that, and why would I make it my chief order of business to convince you of that this very day? The answer resides in the author. Who wrote these verses? Paul. I want to remind you of five facts. Simple facts. We could say much more, but I'm going to reserve my comments to five facts concerning Paul. Number one, here it is. He is one of the most intelligent men who ever lived. It is impossible to read his epistles without admiring his mind. Fact number two. He enjoyed experiences that exceed our comprehension. He was the beneficiary of visions and revelations. On one occasion, he was actually caught up to the third heaven. Fact number three. He is the greatest missionary who ever lived. He traveled throughout the Roman Empire, establishing local churches wherever he visited. Fact number four. He endured unimaginable suffering, multiple beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, and other hardships during 30 years of ministry. Fact number five He's preeminent among the apostles. God granted Paul unique insight into the mystery of Christ and his contribution to Scripture, the canon is without parallel. Did you get all that? Now, what I want you to notice in this text, the flow of it, the flavor of it, if you like, summed up in that opening statement in verse 24, wretched man that I am. From the lips of the greatest missionary... From the lips of the greatest apostle, from the lips of one of the most intelligent men who ever lived, one who was privy to unbelievable spiritual experiences, one who went through untold suffering but persevered through it all, here is, if there ever was one, a bastion of the Christian faith. And here he is in the midst of his life's journey. Here he is in the midst of his ministry, proclaiming this statement. These words, wretched man, that I am. Why? Why does he say that? Simply because in these verses, Paul gets very personal, very personal. He swings open the door to his heart, if you like, and he shares with us. He shows us something of his ongoing struggle with indwelling sin and as he reveals himself and as he puts on display this ongoing struggle in the midst of it all, he utters these words, O wretched man that I am, for me, I will tell you, that statement, that statement, these verses make this text one of the most comforting passages in the whole Bible. Let me sum it up for you what these verses have meant to me over the years. I'm going to sum it up for you in a statement. Here it is. If not, I repeat, if not, for what Paul says about his experience in these verses, despair would have swallowed me up a long, long time ago. Did you hear it? If not, if not for what Paul says about his own experience, right here, this text, these verses, these words, if not for that, despair would have swallowed me up whole a long, long time ago. This is, I repeat it, this is one of the most comforting texts in the whole Bible. Now, how. Are we going to make sense of it? Because it is complex, isn't it? You got a feel for that as I read it publicly. There are a lot of tricky statements in there. A lot of perplexing thoughts. Some of them seem detached and unrelated and getting your mind, our minds around what Paul is saying, seems to be a tall order. I appreciate, I read this some time ago from the pen of Alexander White. I read this statement and he—I mean he gets a blue ribbon, pat on the back full marks. In reference to this text, he penned the following. The right context is half the interpretation. That's beautiful. I mean, that is so helpful. The right context is half the interpretation. In other words, if we simply get the context, if we can simply answer the question, what is going on here? If we can simply come to terms with the answering this question, what is Paul doing? If we can just answer that, what is Paul doing? We will be halfway there, more than halfway there, to actually interpreting the passage. And so that's how I want to approach it. That's how I want us to dive into it. And I'm going to throw out three expressions, three words, if you like, three headings to get us there. The first is going to be the question. There's a question in here. So we're going to need to wrestle with it, make sure we understand what he's asking. Then, obviously, we're going to look at the answer. He doesn't leave us hanging. He responds to his own question. And then, thirdly, the proof, the support he gives to back up his answer. And so we see the question, firstly, at the outset of verse 13. So this sets the tone. Here's the question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? The word I want you to notice, first off, is a seemingly irrelevant, unimportant one. It is the word then. It means therefore, which demonstrates what for us? That the question actually flows from where? Out of what Paul has already said. The question just isn't suspended in air. Did that which is good bring death to me? No, did that which is good then, given what I have said, did that which is good then, therefore, bring death to me? And so what he is doing, he's acknowledging this question, which arises out of what he has just said in the preceding verses. In particular, two facts. Two facts. Fact number one in verse 11, here it is. For sin, that is indwelling sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, He has in mind, in view, the 10th commandment. Do not covet, as it represents the entire Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And he has been talking about this Decalogue, this law, in this section. Well, here he acknowledged that sin, his indwelling sin, seized an opportunity through the commandment, that is, through God's law. It deceived him, and what happened? Through it, that is, through the commandment, through law, killed me. And so my sin... My sin and my propensity to sin, when I face the law, I recognize that I disobey it. And therefore, I incur God's wrath. I incur God's judgment, condemnation, guilt, death. So that's the first fact he makes, that sin kills us through the law. The second fact brings us into verse 12. The law is holy. And the commandment, there again, he hasn't viewed the tenth commandment, do not covet, is holy and righteous and good. So what's the problem? The problem is simply this put the two facts together. Sin kills me through the law. But the law is holy, righteous, and good. That is perplexing. That that creates a puzzle for me. Is Paul actually suggesting? That something that is good, how how it, it, something that is so good did something so bad. How could something that is so good, so holy, so righteous like the law, do something so bad? And so he sums it up then in the question in the 13th verse. Did that which is good, he's referring to the law, then bring death to me. So how do we reconcile these two facts in verses 11 and 12? That is the question. He provides the answer as we move on in the 13th verse. By no means. There's his answer. No way. Perish the thought. Doesn't leave it there. He explains why, why that which is good did not bring death to us. By no means. And here he makes two points. Point number one is this. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In other words, the law wasn't what actually killed me. The law was the weapon. Sin was the murderer. My indwelling sin is what kills me. My indwelling sin is what condemns me in God's sight. It is because of my indwelling sin that I incur God's judgment. All the law does is bring that to light. All the law does is confirm that. And so whereas the law might be the weapon. Sin is the killer. And the second point he makes, as we continue on in verse 13, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. Here's the second point. In order that. So this had a purpose in the plan of God. In order that. And so sin kills me using the weapon of law, something that is good and holy and righteous, so that in order that, what? Something might become evident. Something might become abundantly clear. Something might become so unmistakable in my self-evaluation in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. And so this fact that sin kills me, I am condemned... Through the means of the law, something that is so holy, it reveals the character of God. Something that is so good, it upholds the perfect will of God for us. Something that is so righteous, does not require anything of us that is is mind-boggling or anything that is beyond comprehension, but just requires of us what is perfect and good and acceptable in God's sight, that this thing which is so good, so holy, so righteous, is the vehicle by which sin kills us, demonstrates just how utterly sinful sin is. Are you with me? That's his point. That is the context. And now all he does in verses 14 through 25, in all that convoluted language, all he does is prove it. And he proves it from his own experience. He is writing as a Christian. There has been much debate over that issue through the centuries. For me, it's perfectly clear and evident he's writing as a Christian. Look at his attitude towards sin in verse 14. I am of the flesh sold under sin. Look at it again in verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. No unbeliever talks like that. That is the language of a Christian. Look at his attitude toward the law. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. Verse 16, at the end, the law is good. Look at what he says in verse 21, I delight in the law of God. No unbeliever talks of the law in those terms. And notice thirdly, his attitude toward the Lord Jesus in verses 24 and 25. No unbeliever speaks of Christ in those terms. He is speaking as a believer. He is speaking as a Christian. He is speaking as a man who has been born again, and he is opening up his experience, and he is opening up his experience to prove what? That sin kills us through the law, something that is so good in order to demonstrate just how utterly sinful sin is. In other words, to bring us face to face with our utter wretchedness, to use Paul's expression. Now, what we need to gather here and we need to understand in our minds, and this is where the complexity arises, is the context in which Paul states this. You go all the way back to chapter 6, verse 1, and he has been speaking of the doctrine of sanctification. And he he has made the point that there is the old and there is the new. And he's given us three vivid pictures of this relationship between the old and new. He has spoken of two men, an old man and a new man. He's spoken of two masters, an old master and a new master. And has spoken of two marriages, an old marriage and a new marriage. And he has simply been making this point, look, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, something happens. Simply this. You actually become one with him. You believe, you enter into union with the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit. When you enter into union with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's true, you're now one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, the penalty of your sin has been paid for in full, because he has paid the penalty for your sin. And what is his is counted and reckoned as yours. But understand this that also because you are now one with him, you have a new identity in him new man, new master, new marriage. And the Holy Spirit who unites you to Christ has broken the power of sin in your lives. But here's the problem. You must understand the now and the not yet of sanctification. You must understand that there's this difference between what we are now and what we will be one day. So whereas we have this new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of sin has been broken in us, guess what? We are still who we were. Indwelling sin has not gone away. Its dominion has been broken, but it has not been uprooted. It is still there, very much alive and well. That is the now experience and reality of every believer. We are awaiting the not yet, which is what? The consummation of our salvation, where God not only deals with the power of our sin, breaking it, but removes it from us entirely as he conforms us to the perfect image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we are stuck in the now. Paul enters into his experience in the now. And what he does in this section for a little while is he lays aside his identity in Christ. Just sort of lays it aside. And he focuses on who he still is in and of himself. And he calls it the flesh. And so, yes, I know who I am in Christ new man, new master, new marriage. I understand my identity in Christ. And I understand this great calling and sanctification. Now act like it. You're now one with Christ. You're seated with him in the heavenly places. Now act like it. That is, work it out in your daily expre- daily experience by overthrowing sin's dominion, indwelling sin. He knows that. But he's just kind of laying aside over here his identity in Christ, and he's just turning the focus again to who he is in and of himself, even as a Christian, to prove what? That even in and of himself, when confronted with the law, something that is holy, righteous, and good, what is his experience? Complete inability. Complete inability. That although in Christ my new identity, I know, I now know, this law is holy, righteous, and good. When I just focus on me, when I just hone in on what I am in and of myself, the flesh, and the presence of indwelling sin in me, oh, the law proves what? The law makes sin utterly sinful, sinful beyond measure, exceedingly sinful. But even now in this new condition, even now having been born again, even now with this new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, in myself, my flesh, the remnants of the old nature, I find nothing but futility. Oh, wretched man that I am. He emphasizes it with four pairs. I'm not going to break down every phrase and sentence, but you get these four pairs, if you like, four couplings. You'll get it. You'll understand what he is saying. The first pair is found in the 14th verse. And so we're going to have two columns. Column number one over here. What does he say in verse 14? We know that the law is Spiritual. You got it? Right over here, column number one. So there's no problem with the law. The law is not the problem. The law is spiritual. What's the problem? Move over here now to column number two. It completes the pairing. Rest of verse 14. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's the problem. The remnants of indwelling sin... And so he goes on to say in the 15th verse, I do not understand my own actions when I just look at myself in the flesh. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And then we have this second pairing, coupling in verse 16. Back over here to this column. He's already said the law is spiritual. Now what does he say? Verse 16. The law is good. The law is not the problem. What's the problem? Look at verse 18. We're back over to this column now. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability in me. I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not a schizophrenic, folks. What's he saying? What's his point? It is no longer I who do it. But sin that dwells within me. Who's the I? My identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the new I. That's the new man. And so this this ongoing struggle with sin and this, this inclination to sin has nothing to do with who I am in Christ. But testifies to what? The remnants of sin in the flesh. Sin that dwells within me. And then there's a third pair brings us into verse 21. Back over to this column. He's already said the law is spiritual. He's already said the law is good. Now what does he say at the outset of verse 22? I delight in the law of God. Right? I delight in it. The law is not the problem. What does he say moving back over to this column? He completes it in verse 23. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law, the principle of sin that still dwells in my members. And then there is a fourth pair. Takes us into the 25th verse. Back over to this column. My left, your right. He's already said what? The law is spiritual, verse 14. The law is good, verse 16. I delight in the law of God, verse 21. And now he says in the 25th verse, in the middle, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But back over to this column. He's already made the point, verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin. He's made the point in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's made the point in verse 23, that I am captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And now he tops it all off right at the end of the 25th verse. My flesh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Oh, are you seeing it? It is complex, isn't it? It's not easy. But you put the four pairs together, you keep the context in view, and we begin to understand what it is Paul is doing. He's proving a point. He is proving that sin is utterly sinful. He is proving that indwelling sin is unbelievably sinful how does he do that even now as a regenerate man even now as a Christian even now as a believer when I just kind of lay aside my focus of my identity in the Lord Jesus and I just take a I just look within and I take stock of what's lurking in there and I take stock of what I am apart from Christ uh, what do I find oh I still see the power of indwelling sin and now even though I know the law is good even though I know it's spiritual, even though in Christ I delight in the law, even though in Christ I'm inclined to the law, oh, when I look at simply what I am in and of myself in my flesh, the law is repugnant to me, completely incapable of obeying the law. Therefore, the law, something that is holy, righteous, and good, actually serves what purpose? It shows the utter sinfulness of sin, oh wretched man, that I am. Now, here's the question of questions. What's that got to do with you this morning? How are we going to apply this? How are we going to apply this? Well, I'm going to break you into two groups, as I often do, believers and unbelievers, Christians, non-Christians, regenerate, unregenerate. And I'm going to, inside, outside, in Christ, out of Christ. And I want to speak to the unbeliever for a moment. And so you know who you are. And I'm speaking the truth in love, but I want to speak directly to you. As you have listened to me, and as you have heard these verses, undoubtedly, you don't need to nod your head in agreement, but undoubtedly this has been complete gibberish to you. Just what is he talking about? What is Paul talking about? Here is why it's meaningless to you. Here is why it is weightless to you. It is because you still do not get your need. You think you know yourself. You do not know yourself. You do not know, grasp, understand, yet see, perceive exactly what and who you are before a holy God. John Piper says it so well. Our sinful condition, indwelling sin, is the commitment to be our own God. I will be God to me. It was the original sin back in the garden, Adam and Eve, and every one of Adam and Eve's descendants save Christ has committed the exact same sin ever since. I will be God. I will decide what is right and wrong for me. I will decide what is good and bad for me. I will decide what is true and false for me. And my desires will express my sovereignty. They will express my autonomy. And they will express my deity. Until you see it, folks, I'm speaking to unbelievers. Until you grasp exactly how you really tick, until you're able to see inside your heart and grasp the depths of the depravity and self-love, self-will, selfishness that resides there, the Bible is a closed book to you. The gospel is meaningless to you because you do not yet understand who you are and the danger you are in. I can't remember what the show was about a few years back now, but this young couple on a jet ski, Caribbean, somewhere like that, I don't know, there they were having a whale of a time on this jet ski out on the ocean blue. Helicopter passing over, I don't know what the helicopter was doing there, but picked them up on the camera. Maybe it was a news copter, I don't know. And so there we had, I was watching from this vantage point of the helicopter passing overhead, this young couple hooping and hollering down there on the jet ski just without a care in the world celebrating. But what had caught the cameraman's attention was what? About 50 feet below this couple were a couple dozen sharks. And you could see them through the clear water. These sharks right below the jet ski. Here was this couple, absolutely clueless. No idea at all of the peril that was just lurking below the surface. If you are an unbeliever, that is you. That is you. You can't see the forest for the trees. You don't see the predicament you're actually in. You have not yet come to terms with who you are. For Paul, it was the 10th commandment, wasn't it? We saw that a few Sundays ago. For Paul, it was the 10th commandment. Do not covet. And when Paul heard that commandment, undoubtedly, I mean, he had memorized it. He heard it many times over the years. But suddenly there arrived a day in Paul's life, Paul's experience, when the Holy Spirit made the commandment come alive. And Paul understood what? Hey, that's talking about me. That commandment is directed at me. That commandment is challenging my self love, that commandment is challenging my self autonomy. That commandment is daring to actually challenge my deification of myself. And I don't like it. And as a result, Paul died. Because at that moment, he began to see his utter sinfulness before God. Do not covet fame, popularity, wealth, security, attention, Pleasure, comfort, control, peace, success, power, notoriety, marriage, influence, job, children, admiration. What do you daydream about? That is who you are. That is who you are. What do you daydream about? That is who you are and nothing more. And therein lies your problem. Unbridled covetousness. Do not covet. When we see that, we die. And when we die, we start to look for someone who can help us. And when we start to look for someone who can help us, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that faith, we are made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ, the penalty for my sin is paid in full, because he paid it upon Calvary's cross. Condemnation is gone. Guilt is gone. And because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of sin has been broken. Yes, I'm awaiting final liberation in the future. And now I am seeking to live out my identity in Christ by obeying his commands. But the power is broken. Therein you find salvation in Christ. The only one who can deal with your problem, real problem. The guilt of sin and the power of sin through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are my remarks to the unbeliever. You know who you are. The two, three, four, five, ten, dozen, twenty of you old, young boy, girl, I don't know, whoever you are, there it is, I beg of you, to look in the mirror, spiritually speaking, come to grips with exactly who you are, not what you think you are, not who you pretend to be, but who you are in light of that tenth commandment, do not covet. Pray that the Spirit of God impresses it upon your heart, breaks your heart, and in that condition, you will start looking for a Savior. You will sell all that you have to gain this Savior. There will be no expense too great to attain this Savior. You will forgo everything for this price of excellency, the Lord Jesus Christ, once you see your predicament before a holy God. So I beg of you. Look closely at the 10th commandment. Evaluate yourself in light of it. And see that there is a savior of sinners. There is only one who can pardon the guilt of sin. And there is only one who can break the power of sin. Now I said two groups of people. Unbelievers. Second group of people. The vast majority. The choir here this morning. How are we going to apply this? What use are we going to make out out of this? I want to make six suggestions, affirmations. Here we go. Number one, this text, these verses help us to avoid the trap of perfectionism. You're out there. You know who you are. I could name some of you and I could add my name to the list. It helps us avoid the trap of perfectionism. A young man hears a preacher say, if you only had enough faith, you would be free from your sin." You can live a victorious life now. You can attain to a higher life. The young man is perplexed because he's struggling with sin, past and present. This talk of a higher life has compounded his guilt and frustration. He concludes, he must not be very spiritual. Oh, this passage of scripture clears that right up, doesn't it? You look at what Paul says again in the 15th verse. I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Look at what he says in the 19th verse, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so we see this struggle on the part of the Apostle Paul himself. And in him, we have this great assurance, this great exhortation, if you like, to avoid the trap of perfectionism. Hear these words, conflict, struggle, and temptation are consistent with being a Christian. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. You can't be a Christian without conflict, struggle, and temptation. The more we grow in holiness, the more intense the struggle actually becomes. I know, seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But it is the biblical truth and reality. The more we grow in holiness, the more intense the struggle actually becomes. Why? Because the more we see the deep, deep, deep deep-rooted nature of our sin. John Knox, Scottish reformer, hit the nail on the head. In youth, in youth, in middle age, and even now as an old man, after many battles, I find in me nothing but corruption nothing but corruption these verses help us avoid the trap of perfectionism second word to the believer is this these verses help us avoid the threat of antinomianism that's a big word they help us avoid the threat of antinomianism what is antinomianism it's simply this grace 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 what do i need the law for Grace, grace, grace. What do I need to obey for? Uh, great. I'll just follow the inkling in my heart. I'll just follow the leading of the Spirit, however loosely and ill defined that is. Why do I need a. Uh, we don't need the law anymore. We're not charged to obey anymore. No, 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 no. These verses help us avoid the threat of antinomianism. And so a young woman reading these verses concludes that Paul, Paul talks like this because he's still trapped under the sense that he needs to obey the law. That's the young woman's conclusion. She concludes that Paul talks like this simply because he's still trapped under the sense that he needs to obey the law. If he really understood that he was free from any obligation to obey the law, then his conscience wouldn't bother him. This woman is convinced that all she needs to do is believe the gospel more and more and more and more. Just believe the gospel more and everything will be okay. Look what Paul says in the 14th verse. We know the law is spiritual. Look what he says in the 16th verse. I agree with the law that it is good. Look again at what he says at the outset of verse 22. I delight in the law of God. There is nothing wrong with the law. There is nothing wrong with obedience. They only become wrong. They only become a problem when we think we can obey the law outside of Christ. They only become a problem when we think we can do that as a means to merit our salvation. They only become a problem when we turn them into works of righteousness. But for a believer, there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments, folks. Matter of fact, most of us probably don't pay enough attention to the Ten Commandments. It would actually solve many of our problems if we did pay some attention to the Ten Commandments. We don't approach them as a legalist, seeking to please God or earn His favor. But if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's an expression of grace. Oh, Kevin Day Young writes, oh, if only we really believed, whatever that means is always ill defined. If only we really believed, obedience would take care of itself. No, it wouldn't. There's no need for commands or effort. Yes, there is. The Bible doesn't reason like that. The Bible has no problem with the word, therefore. Grace, therefore, stop doing that. Grace, therefore, start doing that. Grace, therefore, obey. There is no contradiction. That is Scripture's testimony to us. We are not antinomians. We do not disregard the law. Oh, the law is holy and righteous and good. God wants His people to obey Him. He expects His people to obey Him. And He expects them to do so, not because they're trying to earn His favor, not because they're trying to earn their way to glory or to salvation, but because they love Him, And out of an expression of grace and mercy and thankfulness, they want to know his will and actually do it. Oh, these verses help us avoid the threat of antinomianism. These verses, thirdly, help us avoid the risk of defeatism. The risk of defeatism. What do I mean by that? Let me give you another illustration. A young man has been languishing for seven years under the same habitual sin. Whatever the sin is, doesn't matter. He's been languishing seven years under the same habitual sin. He has arrived at the conclusion that he is powerless to do anything about it, even in Christ. And as long as he's sincere about his sin, open, as long as he's sincere about his predicament, then it's okay. Okay. He has given up fighting. That is defeatism. Hear these words. Defeatist Christians who do not fight against sins because they figure they were born this way or will never change or don't have enough faith are not being humble. They dishonor the Holy Spirit who strengthens us with supernatural power. That's where Paul's going in chapter 8, folks. Remember, he's been painting a very specific picture here. Painting a very specific picture because he's trying to prove a point. He's proven the point. And in chapter 8, he's going to pick up the theme of what it means to walk in the spirit, of what it means to walk out our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. So enough of and away with this defeatist mentality. Well, I've been doing it for 12 years. I'm powerless to do anything about it, even as a Christian. You're just excusing your sin, excusing it. You've given up the struggle. You've given up the fight. Hear these words from J.C. Ryle, where there is grace, there is conflict. There is no holiness without warfare. For in the words of another, the pursuit of holiness is a battleground, not a playground. Our basic problem is this. One of our basic problems is this. Uh, We love leisure more than we hate sin. For many of us, we love leisure more than we hate sin. We're lazy. We're lazy. The idea of engaging in battle... The idea of engaging in spiritual warfare. I mean, this is actually going to cost me. This is actually going to require some effort, some grace-compelled effort, some Christ-motivated effort. No, 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 no. People aren't up for the effort. If it doesn't come naturally, if it doesn't come easy, I'm not signing up for it. I'm not interested. And they adopt this defeatist attitude. Oh, these verses help us def- avoid defeatism. Number four, these verses teach us to cry, utter two cries simultaneously. Two cries simultaneously. Cry number one, verse 24, I am wretched. Wretched man that I am. There it is, cry number one. I am wretched. Cry number two, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We utter two cries simultaneously. If all we ever cry is the cry of verse 24, wretched man that I am, we will end up as self-absorbed, self-preoccupied navel gazers. That's what we'll end up at. If, however, all we ever cry is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, we'll end up some sort of loosely ill-defined, some sort of loosely ill-defined faith, no longer knowing what we're even thankful for. No, it is both simultaneously we acknowledge who we are in ourselves, wretched man that I am, and we acknowledge simultaneously who we are in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sang it earlier, the Getty song. That he would give, that God would give his only son to make a, I think they must have had this text in mind when they penned it, to make a wretch, his treasure. To make his wretch a treasure. We utter both cries simultaneously. I am wretched. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. The fifth lesson is this. These verses help us to recognize that salvation comes in stages. 24th verse, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul understood better than anyone the now and not yet aspects of salvation. He is not crying out for the separation of his soul and body. That's not what he's doing. He is crying out for the resurrection. He is crying out and longing for glorification. Why? Why? because he knows it will mark the end of his struggle. When the power of sin, yes, is broken, but the very presence of sin will be dealt with. These verses extend to us that hope and remind us that salvation comes in stages. Sixthly, finally, these verses teach us that we must seek to be renewed in our minds by the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. What does that mean? Shared it a few Sundays ago. I'll share it again from that book we're all studying. The Hole in Our Holiness from Kevin Day Young. He writes the following. In effect, God says to you, if you're a believer right now, this is what God says to you. Because you believe in Christ by the Holy Spirit, I have joined you to Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's in heaven, so you're in heaven. He's holy, guess what? You're holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. Now, act like it. That is what it means to be renewed in the spirit of the mind. It is to reflect daily upon our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is simply to act like it. It is to resolve each and every day. This day I live coram Deo. This day, not worrying about tomorrow. This day I live before the face of God. This day, compelled by gratitude, thankfulness, This day, given who I am, my identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, this day I act like it. And I put to death indwelling sin. I overthrow sin's dominion today. I do so as an expression of thankfulness. I do so as an act of obedience. And I do so to glorify that Savior who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our Father We do pray for understanding in regards to these verses. We pray for understanding regarding the many truths and lessons that are here. And we especially pray for understanding when it comes to our relationship or identity with the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray. Help us to daily see who we are in your sight. Help us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness daily. Help us to put off the old and put on the new. Paul exhorts us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. These things we pray for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen.